Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. They take care of our air conditioning and they do a great job. You can find out more and give them a call. Johnson'sAirConditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is LifeInNaples.net. We have terrific guests for today's show, including William Yateman, Research Fellow at the Cato Institute. We'll visit with William Yeaman. He is a professor at Stanford University and Senior Fellow at the Stanford University's Hoover Institution. He's got a new book out, A Round of Golf with My Father, A New Psychology of Exploring Your Past to Make Peace with Your Present. Sounds interesting. We'll visit with William. Michael Cannon is the Director of Health Studies at the Cato Institute, and our U.S. Congressman Byron Donalds will be joining us as well. It is September the 17th, and on this day in 1862, beginning early in the morning, Confederate Union troops in the Civil War clashed near Maryland's Antietam Creek in the bloodiest single day in American military history. The Battle of Antietam marked the culmination of the Confederate Robert E. Lee's general. He's the first invasion of the northern states, guiding his army of northern, uh, his army of northern Virginia across the Potomac River in early September. The great general daringly divided his men, sending half of them under the command of General Thomas Stonewall Jackson to capture the Union garrison at Harper's Ferry. President Abraham Lincoln put Major General George B. McClellan in charge of the Union troops, responsible for defending Washington after Lee's invasion. Over the course of September 15th and 16th, the Confederate and Union armies gathered on opposite sides of Antietam Creek Fighting began in the foggy dawn hours of September the 17th as savage and bloody combat continued for eight hours across the region. The Confederates were pushed back but not beaten despite sustaining some 15,000 casualties. By the time the sun went down, both armies still held their ground despite staggering combined casualties. Nearly 23,000 of the 100,000 soldiers engaged, <clears throat> including uh, the more than 3,600 dead. McClellan's center never moved forward, leaving a large number of Union troops that did not participate in the battle. On the morning of September the 18th, both sides gathered their their wounded and buried their dead. That night, Lee turned his forces back to Virginia. Bloodiest day in American history, 1862 on this day. Well, after months of work, the Arizona State uh, Senate announced it will release the report of its long-awaited Maricopa County 2020 election review next week. The representative of the State Senate confirmed the Washington Examiner that the review of the 2020 election, which included a recount of roughly 2.1 million ballots cast in the county and a forensic inspection of voting machines used in the general election, would be released on September the 24th. That's good news. Look forward to that announcement on the uh, 24th. <clears throat> I think it's going to precipitate a lot of further movement on some of the audits that are going on in the other border uh, line states there, including Pennsylvania, Georgia, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. Well, Governor Ron DeSantis was at Broward Health to ensure a highlight progress made in the Florida through efforts to expand the access to life-saving monoclonal antibody treatments. Florida has uh, 25 state-run monoclonal antibody treatment sites. Since opening the first uh, site in Florida on August the 12th, our state has experienced a more than 50% decrease in hospital admissions. Additionally, there's been a decline in hospital census for 24 consecutive days, and the COVID-like emergency room visits are down to the lowest point in nearly two months. That's all good news, but here's old Joe getting interfering with progress. The Biden administration this week slashed the doses of life-saving coronavirus antibody treatments to Florida, giving the state less than half of what it needed for a routine week prioritizing equitable distribution, a move some suspect as a form of revenge against Republican governors whom the president vows to get out of the way. The Biden administration this week began to cut the distribution of monoclonal antibodies to red states such as Florida and Alabama, contending these states, including Texas, Mississippi, Tennessee, Georgia, and Louisiana are comprising too big a share of the supply in recent weeks. 
70%. Health and Human Services will determine the amount of product each state and territory receives on a weekly basis, a spokesperson said. State and territorial health departments will subsequently identify sites that will receive product and how much. Can you imagine this bureaucracy? This is already, this is so crazy. Already this had a negative impact on states such as Florida, where Governor DeSantis has been announcing more and more antibody treatment centers across the state. Even Dr. Anthony Fauci has recognized the treatments as effective intervention for the Chinese coronavirus. This is bad news. This is really bad for, for Florida. But DeSantis said, He's being proactive, and he's been in a communication with GlaxoSmithKline, another maker of monoclonal antibodies treatment. He says he was looking for expanding beyond regeneration and can contact with another supplier in order to make up for any shortage that could occur under the new HHS distribution plan. He said the results of the monoclonal antibodies are positive and that they have been 24 consecutive days of decline in hospital census statewide. The governor said he's pleased with the trends that are occurring and Credits the vaccine and monoclonals for the reduction in hospitalization rates. Florida hospital admission rates have decreased by 50% in the last uh, uh, month. It's great news. Sure, the governor will get it figured out, but certainly having to work around uh, the federal government and the Biden administration for own good health seems ridiculous to me. Well, the Gateway Pundit previously reported that COVID cases are plummeting in India thanks to new rules that promote ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine to its massive population. The 33 districts in India have now become free from COVID-19 government informed, uh, the government informed on Friday. The recovery rate has increased by 98.7%, proving the effectiveness of ivermectin as part of the uh, COVID mo- uh, control model. Of course, the media won't mention that ivermectin is being used in the treatment of COVID-19. The state has estimated a population of 241 million folks in 2021 and has the highest population in India. This is almost two-thirds of the United States population in 2021, and yet now a COVID-19-free nation, if you can believe that, because of ivermectin. The uh, active caseload is down to 269 folks, just 269, while the percentage of active cases against the total confirmed cases is 0%. It's amazing, amazing results. So why don't we promote ivermectin as a therapeutic for the disease? Well, it's because, quite frankly, the president wants to get everybody vaccinated, wants to get them a jab. It's uh, just really unconscionable. Uh, what this administration is doing. He's so ineffective as a president. He makes bad decisions, and this is just another one. Another COVID whistleblower has come forward, as exclusively reported by Gateway Pundit, to allege the statistics about ICUs being overrun are wildly inflated, overreported, in many cases an outright lie by political officials. Joss Sinder worked in facilities management at Missouri Baptist Medical Center, or MBMC. I watched over the hospital's administrators say in the media that our intensive care units were overflowing with COVID patients as at 98% capacity, knowing it was a complete and utter lie, he said. Sender relates that the uh, hospital, part of a larger $5.5 billion annual network with the Barnes-Jewish Hospital System in St. Louis, actually shut down three out of the four floors of intensive care during COVID because they were unused. That's right, unused. And even after shutting down three-fourths of the ICU capacity, they were still never more than 50% full with a drastically reduced overall capacity. These medical systems are saying they are overrun with COVID-19 patients are likely lying to the public, Cinder said. That's an amazing story. So there's evidently a political agenda afoot with regard to COVID-19. There has been for the last 18 months, and uh, we can see a patent evidence of that right here with this whistleblower. Well, an attorney who represented Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign was indicted for uh, lying to the FBI as part of the special counsel John Durham's ongoing probe into the origins of the FBI's investigation into the ties between Russia and former President Donald Trump's campaign. 
The lawyer, Michael Sussman, is a former federal prosecutor who represented the Democrat National Committee on issues related to Russia's 2016 hacking of its servers, uh, citing unnamed people, that was the Times. Sussman's lawyers, Sean Berkowitz and Michael Bosworth, said in a statement the client has committed no crime. You can take their word for it, I'm sure. The case against Sussman centers on who his client was when he met with the FBI lawyer. The FBI lawyer recalls Sussman saying he was not meeting on behalf of any client, while Sussman told Congress that in a deposition that he sought a meeting on behalf of a cybersecurity expert. Durham's, the Times reported, has obtained billing records from Sussman's law firm showing that he was logged certain hours as working with the Russian bank matter. He billed them to the Democrat Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign. I think this is a big deal. We look forward to talk to uh, William Yateman about this here in a few minutes, but I think this is a really big deal because what happens is this lower-level indictment assessment could lead to higher levels. Could it reach Hillary Clinton? That could be very interesting. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you'll visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also by Life in Naples magazine, be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, William Yateman, Research Fellow at the Cato Institute. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of The Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m., seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Did you know St. Matthew's House operates the only emergency homeless shelters in Collier County? St. Matthew's House provided more than 500,000 hot meals to those in need last year, and since 2010, 527 men and women have graduated from the St. Matthew's House Justin's Place Addiction Recovery Program. For over 30 years, St. Matthew's House has provided innovative solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, substance abuse, and poverty in Southwest Florida. And you can help St. Matthew's House in this life-transforming work by patronizing the St. Matthew's House Thrift Stores, Cafe M25, Car Wash and Detailing Center, and award-winning catering operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and does not solicit government funding. Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. We're providing you news and commentary rooted in a commitment to individual liberty, personal responsibility, limited government, and the rule of law. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with William uh, Damon. He is a uh, research fellow at uh, Stanford University. He's a professor as well as an author of a new book. Right now we have with us William Yateman, Research Fellow at the Cato Institute. William, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on, Bob. Always a pleasure. Tell us about the Cato Institute. You bet. Uh, We're a think tank here in Washington, D.C., and we're dedicated to advancing the ideals of a free society at every level of government. Cato.org is the website, C-A-T-O.org. So uh, let's pick up where we left off. Uh, things are starting to get really gnarly with, in the uh, <laughs> Capitol Hill with regard to 
the plans for funding human infrastructure and the budget. So maybe you could comment on what's going on. Indeed. Uh, so I'm thrilled to report that Democrat infighting over infrastructure is uh, reaching a fever pitch. Mm. So uh, as always, I'll, pro I'll provide a little background. On the one hand, we've got the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. Moderates love it. It's bipartisan, and it entails about $500 billion in new spending on traditional infrastructure. On the other hand, we've got this $3.5 trillion, quote, human infrastructure package, and, and progressives love this one. And it entails every imaginable progressive goal and wish under the sun all in one bill. And it is well, wholly partisan, but no Republican support whatsoever. So what we've got shaping up is brinksmanship um, within the Democrat Party between moderates and progressives over that $3.5 trillion measure, and in particular, the price tag. Uh, progressives are very uncomfortable. It's not clear where, where I'm sorry, moderates, uh, in particular, Senators Joe Manchin and Senema uh, from Arizona, and as well as about 20-odd moderates in the House of Representatives, they haven't articulated exactly what they are comfortable spending mm -hmm. in terms of human infrastructure, but they have stated unequivocally that they don't like the $3.5 trillion number. Um, in return, uh, progressives, as embodied by the Bernie Sand Senator Bernie Sanders and AOC, say that the, they cannot go below the $3.5 number, that they had already, the, the $3.5 number reflected a compromise for them, whereby they came down from $10 trillion. <laughs> um, so we've got these mutually exclusive positions, and the big, the big news this week uh, was really the uh, Biden, uh, President Biden convened a meeting on Wednesday with Senators Manchin and Sinema, and during the meeting he conveyed reportedly that, look, Senators, if you do not support the $3.5 trillion number, then you will sink both packages. And evidently, reportedly, um, well, I'll, I'll put it this way, the headline says it all. This is the Axios headline. Biden bombs with Manchin. So uh, Manchin didn't budge after that meeting. Wow. And we've got these <laughs> two sides that are have these mutually exclusive positions within the Democrat Party. So I remain hopeful, um, indeed more hopeful than last week, that all of it will fall apart um, due to this infighting. Yeah, and that, this looks like it might sink both bills. That, that's what I'm talking about. And to that end, I might note that we've already got it, and I've, I've reported this before, that independent of all the spending that I just spoke of, there is already $700 billion worth of infrastructure spending that was already coming down the pipe. Mm -hmm. um, that's in addition to the $5.5 trillion that Congress just spent over the last 18 months. Um, the long and short of it is that I'm with Senator Ron Johnson and others of his ilk that say any new spending on infrastructure is a bad idea at present. So uh, just like you said, I'm, I'm very much hopeful that we've got a circular firing squad that is in essence going to negate both measures. That is just great news, William. And so uh, right now we also have the debt limit uh, looming. Uh, apparently uh, uh, Janet Yellen is saying we're going to close down. we got no money and we can't pay our bills as of October the 15th. What are your thoughts? Well, this is remarkable. So, uh, again, yes, we actually went through the debt ceiling on uh, July 31st, it was, and at, at $28.5 trillion, and this is the amount of money that Congress allows Treasury to borrow to keep the government running. Um, uh, uh, Treasury, since then, has, is able to basically shuffle around existing funds. It's known in bureaucraties as, quote, extraordinary measures. These extraordinary measures are a stopgap. They're, they're expected to run out sometime next month in October. Um, were they to do so? It, and I'm no macroeconomist, but uh, uh, learned minds out there said it would roil international financial markets. Mm -hmm. um, so the long and short of it is, Democrats don't want to take this vote on alone. They want political cover. They want bipartisan support. Um, Republicans, and, and I think rightfully so, here are drawing a line in the sand and are saying, look, if you want to spend $3.5 trillion more, Democrats, than you take on raising the debt limit, uh, the, the debt ceiling limit. 
Um, it, it, it was reported in the New York Times this week that Democrat leadership's their, their strategy here is to, quote, shame Senator Mitch McConnell into action. Um, so despite the fact that they both have majorities, uh, be it in the House and the Senate, the, the, the Democrat Party does, they're in essence saying they won't act and again, they're going to try to prod Republicans using shame. So I am uh, highly doubtful about the efficacy of that strategy, having lived in, in, in on Capitol, you know, around Capitol Hill and yeah. in Washington, D.C. Um, for 15 years now. Um, so I think ultimately it would be the Democrats that will have to cave here just because they do have majorities in the House and Senate. Um, but that is uh, something to keep an eye on. Yeah, well, it seems to me the Republicans hold all the cards if they've got the backbone to say, we're not negotiating on the deck ceiling. It's not going to increase if you're going to go through with these measures. And by the way, finish the wall and you know some other measures as well. They hold all the cards. And if they, yeah, again, they've always caved because they thought well, this would be uh, devastating for international markets and so forth. This is the last card they have to play. They have to play it. Well, indeed, and I think it's perhaps a misnomer to say they have all the cards just because they're in the minority in both the House and the Senate, and they don't occupy the White House either. Yeah. So it really is, you know, the Democrats, it doesn't make much sense that the majority is saying, hey, hey, we can't act without the minority. That's just, that's certainly not how they're proceeding with a $3.5 trillion human infrastructure measure. So this notion that they somehow can uh, they have leverage over the Republicans in this situation makes no sense to me, given that they hold majorities in both chambers. And I, I think that's uh, indicated by the silly, uh, the New York Times reporting on their silly strategy, which is, I, I can tell you with 100% certitude, that shame as a strategy will get you nowhere inside the beltway. <laughs> they have no shame. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Like, <laughs> can you believe that we actually have... Uh, human infrastructure in our lexicon now, it's just unbelievable. Hey, before I let you go, I, I'd love to get your comments. This, this I think, is a big deal. Uh, Durham has uh, finally come forth with uh, indicting. He's indicted now Sussman, who is a, a pros, uh, an attorney for the Hillary Clinton campaign. Uh, wheels of justice grind slow, but they grind fine. Are we finally going to get some results out of this? Well, so I'll tell you what, uh, the Sussman Politico playbook yesterday morning reported that in addition to Sussman, and this is the one that really caught my eye, is that this, uh, Durham evidently, reportedly, is getting ready to indict Fed prosecutor, or, uh, Department of Justice prosecutor Brandon Van Grack, who was responsible for prosecuting Michael Flynn. Ah. Um, so uh, uh, that that sort of ties up a loose end. We many many months ago yeah. we spoke at length on many shows about how Michael Flynn had gotten railroaded by the FBI. Huh. Um, and this certainly, this as reported by Politico Playbook, uh, would would lend evidence uh, to that end. Um, so yes, I, I do think. Um, we're going to get some eye-popping revelations coming out of this Durham investigation, and I very much look, look forward to them. I mean, this is, um, if indeed political playbook is right, and a prosecutor is going to get prosecuted here, then that's a big deal. It certainly is. William Yeatman, this is just such a great interview. I really appreciate all the good news. William Yeatman is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. C-A-T-O dot org is the website. William, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on, Bob. My pleasure, indeed. All right, coming up, Michael Cannon. He's Director of Health Studies at the Cato Institute. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice of the popular Eden Bar, the intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit BlueProvenceNaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's BlueProvenceNaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. 
Golfshore Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards and providing unique educational opportunities to folks in a spirit of service, adventure, and excitement. Over the past 15 years, the Playhouse has expanded immensely, outgrowing its current facilities. With dreams of expanding even further in order to better serve the community, broaden the economic impact, and strengthen the cultural fabric of our region, it's time to build and move into a new home. A 44,000-square-foot state-of-the-art theater and education center will be built on three acres at the corner of First Avenue South and Goodlett Frank Road, allowing Gulf Shore Playhouse to achieve those dreams. To find out more about Gulf Shore Playhouse, this state-of-the-art performing arts center, and about the season's exciting productions, visit golfshoreplayhouse.org. That's golfshoreplayhouse.org. We'll see you at the show. Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social. It's a new, refreshing social networking platform. I hope you'll download the app and visit the website, choicesocial.us, choicesocial.us. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with our U.S. Congressman Byron Donalds. Right now we have with us Michael Cannon, Director of Health Studies at the Cato Institute. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be back, Bob. Thank you so much, Michael. So lots going on with regard to COVID-19, both from the CDC, from the uh, FDA, and uh, from the President of the United States. Just thought I'd uh, just give you an open question. What's going on? Well, uh, the, the picture is much the same as it has been for weeks and months. Our most effective tool for containing COVID-19 and for reducing the morbidity and mortality of the disease, remains vaccines. Uh, the government has not done all that it should be doing to restore people's freedom to uh, use these vaccines. Uh, but we do have effective vaccines that are on the market right now, and and contain to contain the disease to save lives. The most important thing we can do is to vaccinate. Now there are uh, there are treatments that people are uh, trying and uh, uh, gathering data on. They include monoclonal antibodies. They include uh, ivermectin. And uh, the, 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 the process there should, uh, it, it is moving along where people are trying these and we're gathering data. Uh, and if those turn out to be effective, that's, uh, uh, that's wonderful. Unfortunately, we are not gathering data on those uh, treatments at the rate we should be, and that is because, again, uh, of ways that government has intervened in the market to take away our freedom to make our own health decisions. Yeah. If the government had not done that, we would have we would be able to establish much more rapidly yeah. whether those treatments are effective at uh, uh, at reducing morbidity, mortality from this disease once people acquire it. But yeah. again, the most important or the best way to make sure we're reducing morbidity and mortality is is the vaccination that, that remains our best bet at this point. So that's kind of interesting because I believe it's uh, Pfizer. I don't know if this is attributable to the CDC, the FDA, or Pfizer, but made the comment it looks like that the uh, vaccine has a life shelf life of about six to eight months before it becomes ineffective. Well, what happens is that there is some waning of the, uh, uh, of the efficacy of the vaccine. It, it, it appears that, uh, that the uh, amount of antibodies um, uh, can drop. It still remains remarkably effective. Uh, and, and that is the, even after or six months, eight months, and that is the most important thing for public health officials and for Pfizer to be emphasizing. It's a huge mistake for them to say that if there's a small drop off in the efficacy of the of the vaccine, that uh, that what we should be doing is we should be getting everybody booster shots. Well, here's there the, are he, people there are, and the reason that's a huge mistake is it sends the message that the vaccines don't work when yeah. in fact they do. Even uh, the the evidence that you're mentioning shows that the vaccines are still highly effective, even if there is a a, a drop off over a num in efficacy over a number of months. 
Uh, it's a small drop-off. They're still highly effective. But if we emphasize this, then uh, if, if, we, if, if all we emphasize is that small change, then people will get the wrong impression about the vaccines. They'll think they don't work. They'll say, why should I bother vaccinating? Yeah, well, see, and of course, I'm no health care expert, and certainly you're an expert in health care policy, so uh, I certainly acknowledge that. But what I see is we would take two weeks to flatten the curve. I mean, you, you know how the story has evolved. Then we're going to take the vaccine and we'll all live, live happily ever after. Well, then, you know, then there might have to be a boost. In other words, the story continues to evolve, and it's kind of like a tale of a thousand nights. Well, you know, when. People were saying two weeks to flatten the curve. That was not going to end the... No one ever thought that was going to end the pandemic. They thought that maybe if we do that, then the hospitals won't be overrun. When it comes to vaccines, we have gathered a lot of data about their safety, about their efficacy. They are remarkably safe, much safer than uh, getting COVID-19. And while we don't have long-term data... No data on uh, the long-term effects of the vaccine. That's just because we haven't been getting them to people over the long term. We can't have that data yet, but uh, as we keep gathering data, what it shows is that the vaccine remains highly effective and very safe. So, uh, Michael, I have this question, though. Why aren't we putting more and more emphasis on therapeutics and uh, uh, prophylactics, in other words, making sure that we don't get the disease or getting something that will help uh, mitigate the symptoms of the disease as opposed to just the vaccine? Well, uh, therapies, acute, for, for acute cases of COVID-19, it would be wonderful to have them, but they wouldn't prevent people from getting the disease and from spreading the disease. And vaccines do that. We do have prophylactics. Uh, and they work remarkably well. Uh, and and uh, you know, to give you an idea uh, of of how effective they are, we're having all these debates about masking policy, whether schools are going to mask children, whether employers can require people to wear masks. In the District of Columbia, where I work, there's a mask mandate in place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, uh, I like to say that masks are like turn signals. They can they can save lives. If you if you use them, they can. But you can also drive safely without turn signals. Uh, the risk is a little bit higher. But vac- if masks are like turn signals, vaccines are like brakes. And if all if all the government is doing is trying to get you to uh, wear a ma- mask, or to the extent the government is trying to get uh, get you to wear a mask, uh, it's distracting itself from the what it, the uh, what it should be doing the main intervention that it should be promoting, which is vaccines, and probably uh, and because it's uh, expending so much energy on masks, it's not emphasizing vaccines the way it yeah. should, and not saving uh, lives the way it uh, it could be, uh, and and much like it uh, it would be. Uh, not be an optimal strategy to encourage turn signals when most cars still do not have brakes. Yeah, so, Michael, I, I guess my point is that uh, the president right now is saying everybody needs to get a jab. Well, maybe that's, you know, certainly there's people who have had uh, uh, the coronavirus don't need to get a jab. Uh, he's, uh, you know, he's just basically pushing this whole idea. It's, it doesn't make sense. It creates a lot of doubt and a lot of skepticism. And uh, it just makes me wonder what his motivation. What's the what's the underlying motivation of this entire uh, thing that's going on right now? I just have a lot of questions. It's got, got me. You know, it is. It is. It, most people, a lot of people, don't understand. It is possible to be pro-vaccine and anti-vaccine mandates, uh, and it's just remarkable how some politicians, when they see something that's good, they think, oh, well, we have to make this mandatory. Mm -hmm. And when Joe Biden stands up and instead of saying, hey, here's what the evidence says about your concerns about the mandate, uh, about the the vaccine, uh, we think it would be a good idea for you to do this. Of course, it's up to you. Here is the data. He goes up there instead and says, you need to do this. I'm losing my patience. Some politicians, (laughs) that, that makes people less 
uh, likely, many yeah. people less likely to do what the politician is asking because that the, the, the politician is showing disrespect for people when it uh, Absolutely. When he gets up there and says, I know what's best for you, and you'd better do it. Michael Cannon, again, Director of Health Studies at the Cato Institute. I wish we had more time to continue the conversation. The, the website is cato.org, C-A-T-O.org. Michael, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Anytime, Bob. Thank you. Coming up, we're going to visit with uh, William Damon. He is a professor at Stanford University and director of the Center of Adolescence and senior fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. We're going to be doing that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. you suffer from joint pain in your shoulders, hips, or knees? I was suffering from debilitating pain in my knees. On a referral, I saw Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. He successfully treated my symptoms and pain for several months. Finally, having exhausted all alternatives for pain management, Dr. Markovich and I agreed that surgery was my best alternative. Dr. Markovich replaced both of my knees in 2006, and I now have full range of motion in both knees, and I have no pain. I now play golf and exercise free of debilitating pain in my knees. Don't suffer needlessly with joint pain. Call orthopedic surgeon Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. He did a great job for me and he'll help you too. School Choice is a growing movement, one that is already lifting thousands of kids across America. It's now supported by three out of four voters. The Optima Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit, was founded to support the establishment and expansion of superior schools of choice. Optima's goal is the successful launch of Hillsdale College, classical academies, and other schools of excellence serving kindergarten through 12th grade. The mission is to train the minds and improve the hearts of young people through content-rich classical education in the liberal arts and sciences with instruction in the principles of moral character and civic virtue. A terrific product of the process, Naples Classical Academy opened this fall and a classical virtual school, Optima Classical Academy, will open in 2022. Find out more by visiting OptimaEd.org. Help children in Florida optimize their education opportunities. Visit www.OptimaEd.org. Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Golf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. You can find out more by visiting golfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with our U.S. Congressman Byron Donalds. Right now we have with us a Professor William Yateman, Professor at Stanford University and Director of the Stanford Center of Adolescence and Senior Fellow at the Stanford University's Hoover Institution. He's also the author of a really intriguing new book, A Round of Golf with My Father, The Psychology of Exploring Your Past to Make Peace with Your Present. Professor, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Bob. I'm just delighted to be there. Thank you so much, Professor. Well, you also read an accompanying column here, Why Everyone Should Benefit from a Life Review. Maybe you could tell us about it. Sure. Well, I uh, had an astonishing discovery uh, fairly late in my life, about age 60, uh, when my daughter called me and found out information about my father, her grandfather, who I had never met, and she got curious about him. And I found out that my father, who early in my life I was told died in World War II, and then later thought just had abandoned us and disappeared into the world. I found out that he actually had quite a career, and he influenced my life in lots of ways that I never knew about. Well, this triggered in me a desire to find out about what happened early in my life. And I went through a lot of research and visited old school records and met his old friends, 
found out that I had a whole family that I never knew about, his side of the family. And this, I'm a psychologist, a developmental psychologist. This convinced me that one of the most interesting and productive things that people can do is unravel some of the old mysteries in their lives because I found out that everybody has something, some secrets or something they don't know about Mm -hmm. or something they don't understand or remember well. And when you go back over your life in the right kind of way, you can redeem and find out about a lot of things that maybe you've been confused about or regret or have resentments about and work out things that have troubled you, maybe that you don't even recognize, uh, in a positive way, in a way that gives you a sense of, uh, really, it's ironic or paradoxical, but it gives you a better way to move forward in the future yeah. by going back into the past and and learning about your early life. Yeah. Uh, I quote Faulkner in the book who said, who wrote uh, very famously, uh, the past is not dead. It is not even past. Hmm. Yeah, so interesting. You know, uh, I, I forgot who made the quote. Maybe it was F. Scott Peck, but basically he said, an unexamined life is not worth living. And I yeah. think I think it kind of gets to that point that you're making is that sometimes we look forward uh, often to the detriment of knowing and understanding what our past has brought us. That's exactly right. And the Life Review, which I write about in the book, is a way of systematically exploring and examining the high points in your life, maybe some of the mistakes you've made, some of the things you've ignored, and getting yourself ready for uh, a positive, optimistic future. And I'll just say the, uh, uh, the reason I called the book A Round of Golf with My Father, of course, I never had a round of golf with my father. Mm-hmm. I never met him. He died before I even found out any of this. But this was a kind of an imaginary round of golf. I found an old scorecard of his in my research. Huh. I went and played on his course, <laughs> on his old course. I played against his scorecard. And it was a very <laughs> redeeming experience because I love golf. And one of the things I was always bitter about was that he never taught me how to play the game because he turned out to be a great golfer. Mm. I have to admit I'm not a great golfer by any means, but I love the, I love the sport. But this was just, it was just kind of uh, uh, symbolic of, uh, of my whole life review pursuit of finding a way to, uh, to make up for some of the things that I missed in life. That's so interesting that you shared this with us, and I was, that was the question that I had in my mind, is why a round of golf with your father? But uh, uh, what is it that you want us to take away from the book, or uh, why did you write it? I wrote it to share my own uh, joy and positive experience of going back over my life and, and redeeming a lot of the experiences, including being having a way to forgive my father even for abandoning us, but not just that, other, other things I found out about my life, and, and making, uh, making a positive story out of a lot of the, the events in my life that I had either forgotten or been uh, kind of uh, resentful about or even unconfident about. And since I had this experience, and as I said, I am a psychologist, and I do know the literature. I did not invent the life review, but I knew about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And since I had this experience, I wrote about it in a way that other people could do their own version of it if they're interested. Uh, Because I do believe, and this was the column I wrote, I do believe that it has benefits for everyone, uh, possibly. Uh, at least everyone can be interested in it. And, of course, a lot of people are doing Ancestry.com and 23andMe and a lot of these other kinds of ex- researches into their ancestry and into their past experiences. And I wanted to present my own way of doing it and my own understanding of how the psychological literature uh, can provide people uh, tips about how to 
how they might, if they're interested, how they might do it for themselves. Because a lot of people, when they read, when they read the book, have told me, you know what, gee, I have missing people in my family. Gee, there are things I don't understand. Gee, there are things that I don't remember well. And this can be fun, it can be interesting, and it can prepare you for uh, putting putting your best foot forward in the future. Yeah, no, it's just so interesting to me. I actually uh, I want to get a copy of it. I, I, it really sounds intriguing and uh, very interesting. A Round of Golf with My Father, This New Psychology of Exploring Your Past to Make Peace with Your Present, again, by Professor William Damon. Uh, Professor, I really appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Bob. It's been great talking to you. You as well. Thank you. All right, coming up, we're going to visit with our U.S. Congressman, uh, Byron Donalds, that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. The dining scene in Naples is among the nation's finest. Get a first-hand experience with Naples Culinary Walks. Join a guided food walk with a terrific guide in a small group through elegant Naples neighborhoods known for destination restaurants. In three hours, you'll stop for small plates on your chosen tour. Dining walk choices include morning, afternoon, and evening offerings on 5th Avenue South, Downtown 3rd Street, Waterside, Galleria Shops at Vanderbilt, and more. Prices begin at only $46 a person, depending on the tour you select. To find out more and to make a reservation, visit NaplesCulinaryWalks.com. That's NaplesCulinaryWalks.com for a great value and a terrific dining experience. Do you have an extra auto you'd like to donate to charity? Maximize your tax deduction, support your favorite charity, and help a local child in need by calling Naples Auto Donation Center. Naples Auto Donation Center is a not-for-profit licensed car dealer. Just call NADC at 692-9840 and they'll take it from there. You get a properly documented tax deduction for whatever the vehicle actually sells for. Your designated beneficiary charity gets half the profit after fix-up costs and the net revenue generated by NADC goes to Friends of Foster Children to provide tutoring and other enrichment activities for foster children the government doesn't provide. And NADC is also one of the few places in Collier County that sells inexpensive cars that actually run to folks who would otherwise not be able to afford one. It's a real win-win. Call Naples Auto Donation Center at 692-9840 or visit the website nadckids.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. It's a moral imperative, and you can find out more by visiting thefga.org. We have with us our United States Congressman Byron Donalds. Congressman, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, Bob. How you doing? I'm so well. I'm really doing well. Thank you. I hope you are. I'm doing well. I, I am. Concerned about everything else, though. Uh, absolutely. Well, uh, let's start with the border. Uh, yesterday, I watched Tucker Carlson last night. He made a point of saying that the right now, the, uh, the apparently the Fox News has a drone that they use to watch what's going on. There's 9,000 Haitians gathered at the border and waiting to be processed, and the whole system is just so overwhelmed right now. We've got measles breakouts, breakouts going on. I uh, just want to get your comments on what's happening. Well, first thing is Tucker's reporting is correct. Um, I can confirm. I've talked to my, you know, my colleagues out of Texas, uh, two of which have border uh, districts. That yes, um, the border is overrun. I mean, even more overrun than it normally is these days. Last month there were more than two hundred thousand dollar, two hundred thousand uh, apprehensions at the border. Mm. Um, and that's those are the ones we know about. We don't know about who actually got through. So you probably can double the number about people who've come into the United States last month. Mm. Um, there is a surge now of Haitian, uh, exp- Haitian expats who are crossing illegally. And I think what people don't understand is that um, under Donald Trump's stay in Mexico policy, you had a lot of Haitian foreign nationals, obviously uh, people from the, tr- the, the Northern Triangle countries, uh, Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras, 
all of them were just sitting in Mexico waiting for their asylum hearings to be heard. Because mm-hmm. it takes about three years right now because of the backlog to hear asylum cases, three or five years. So they were remaining in Mexico in order to do that. Um, when Joe Biden lifted that order and basically said, we're just going to give you the date and you can just move on through, everybody started rushing for the border. We do have measles uh, outbreaks, not just at the border, but in some of the temporary holding facilities at Health and Human Services. That's because, you know, obviously, MMR vaccines aren't readily prevalent in Haiti or in some of these countries south of our border. Um, interesting how, you know, people can come to the United States without having to be vaccinated for, you know, MMR. But, mm-hmm. you know, Joe Biden wants you to do that to keep your job in the United States it's, or for COVID-19. It's, it's absolutely insane. But the border's a mess. It stays a mess. And the FAA apparently last night issued an order that you were note that the airspace over uh, that section of the border is now restricted airspace. The reason why is because Fox and other news organizations were actually flying drones over to observe what was going on yeah. and getting footage from it. And the FAA has now blocked the airspace. That's just so crazy. the most transparent uh, administration in American history. I'm, I'm joking. It's actually the, the least transparent administration is is less transparent again. And they'll lie to the American people about what's really going on. Yeah, it's just criminal indeed. And and we also have, of course, the Afghanistan's coming into the country. We don't know where they're settling and where they're going. Uh, it's uh, it's just totally out of control. And by the way, didn't the Supreme Court make a ruling that the uh, stay in uh, Mexico or, you know, uh, didn't they say that that had to, to remain in place? Well, what happened is, is that it got ended. So they're ordering the administration to reinstate it. Um, from what I understand, there's some negotiations with the Mexican government that have to go and have to be taken mm. in order to reinstate that policy. The other thing is, what I believe is the reason why you're seeing a surge at the border is because everybody knows that if, say, in Mexico goes back into effect, you better get while the getting's good. Ah, gotcha. And so that's why you're seeing a surge because people are trying to get in before the border effectively gets shut down again. And this is the problem when you have a, a president or a political party that is just so radical in its viewpoint because. Right now, this year, we probably have about 1.4 million illegal crossings, and these are people who are detained that we know about, not to mention the people who get across that we do not detect because our border agents are over completely overwhelmed and they can't catch everybody. And the Democrats refuse to finish border wall construction. And I mean, people say, oh, build the wall. They think it's a fence. If you actually go down to the border, you see what it is. Then you realize like, oh, yeah, nobody can. You can't cross it like you can't traverse it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Democrats refused to finish construction. They held they stopped construction months ago. The contractors for the border wall continue to get paid, even though they're not building anything, because obviously, you know, you sign a contract, it's got to be fulfilled. So Joe Biden would rather just pay the contractors not to build. Yeah, that's un- what we're doing. That's un- unbelievable. And of course, the un- the story that's not getting the press, of course, is the fentanyl coming across the border, the ch- uh, ch- ch- child uh, trafficking and the, the uh, what's going on with regard to uh young people it's it's just really criminal that's what's happening right now and uh it's it's lawless is what it amounts to and the and the president has instead you know he's not our health care official he's basically our president of the united states supposed to enforce the laws and the major laws that are really matter he's not enforcing yes that, no that's that's absolutely correct he's not doing that um in the budget reconciliation bill apparently there's a amnesty provision for about eight to ten million people Mm. Uh, I think the parliamentarian is supposed to rule today or may have ruled yesterday. I can't remember which day now about whether it can be a budget reconciliation. Um, I mean, look, the Democrats are on the move despite the poll numbers, despite how how uh, incompetent this president is. They could they move and they're not going to stop because right now they have the votes. They have a small window and they're going to try to ram through everything possible. And and what's truly sad is and I always go back to Rahm Emanuel. You never let a crisis go to waste. It gives you the ability to do things you couldn't necessarily do in ordinary times. Yeah. And they are exploiting COVID-19 to push through every element of their agenda. That's what they're doing. Yeah. Well, we're it's, on the precipice. really disgusting. We're on the precipice right now. Some of this legislation possibly happening. Apparently, there's a lot of brinksmanship going on right now. Is this going to pass? Are the, uh, the human, quote unquote, how did human infrastructure ever become part of our lexicon in the first place? <laughs> Is that because like- Bernie Sanders and AOC want it to be. Yeah. And, the, and, the, and big media, it supports what they want to do. You know, I mean, look, there, Bob, I've talked to a lot of people who are obviously who are left leaning when it comes to politics, not the politicians like 
regular Americans who are also very, very liberal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I talked to them about some of these policies and they do, they genuinely wholeheartedly think it's the right thing to do. Mm. And it's because they have a vision of what they want to see happen, but they, what they ignore or what they don't, con- they don't contemplate or think through are the economic realities of where we are and just the reality of economics overall. You know, if you, if you do something like have free community college, which is what Bernie Sanders is put trying to put in this bill, if you put in free community college in the United States, well, then what you do is actually you lower the value of community college. Right. Absolutely. You know, that's what, that's what actually happens. Because if somebody knows that it's free, they're not going to have as much skin in the game as opposed to when they know they have to pay for it. Right. That's one of the reasons why, you know, you'll see a situation where, if, if you know, children, you know, school is compulsory for, for all children in the United States, K through 12. So does a child really have the value of what that education really is unless their parents put it into them or the child is just that child where they have it innately in themselves they don't put value on that education right those are the facts even though we all know there is a value to it and so when you actually try to absolve people of the value and bring it onto the hands of the government what you're going to see is people actually take have less concern for what the what the actual value and worth of that education furthermore we don't have money it's not like we're like we're rolling in surpluses around here we we're 30 trillion in debt uh, we're going to have to uh, raise the debt ceiling, it looks like, sometime over the next couple of weeks. And so when you combine all these things, what we're really doing is we're stealing from future generations, trying to give to future generations. And this is this is basically robbing Peter to pay Paul. I mean, right. it doesn't work no matter where you try it. The Democrats think it does. And they want to experiment with, you know, the greatest proof in world history, which is America. Yeah. A quick question on that uh, debt ceiling. I mean, what is your position on that? It seems to me that's the one card that the uh, Republicans hold right now to uh, fend off some of the things that the Democrats are trying to push through, like, for example, human infrastructure. Well, my my personal stance is that we shouldn't extend the debt ceiling until we enact congressional term limits. I'll just tell you that right now. I think Hmm. that there's one if there's one institutional change we can do is that we have to start getting some people out of, out of Congress. You have a lot of people who have a lot of power and influence who've just been in D.C. far too long. And I'm not trying to say either they're conservative in, in their in nature, in their, in their heart, or they're very liberal in their heart. Doesn't matter. The reality is they're detached from the reality of America because they've been in D.C. too long. Hmm. And I've, I've been there eight months, Bob, and I'll tell you, you can get detached if you don't like pay close attention. Um, and so I think you have to get members out of there. So my view is, you know, if we're going to actually extend the debt ceiling, we need to have structural reforms in, in the entitlement state. We need to enact congressional term limits. Um, you know, we have to have a review of duplicative programs in the federal in the federal budget. We need to stop funding programs that have no more legal authority anymore. We continue to do that. We fund programs that have no legal basis anymore. Mm-hmm. The legal authority is expired, but we just continue to fund the programs. That is legitimate. Yeah, we continue uh, to do all those things, and it's stop. Byron Donalds again, our U.S. Congressman. Byron, if if uh, someone would reach out to you, I know that uh, the, uh, there's ways to reach out to you. How how, how could they do that? The most effective way right now is uh, go to my uh, the office website donalds.house.gov, and then you can always follow me on social media. Everything's at Byron Donalds in social media, so you can follow me there. Uh, but if you want to like, if you have a, information you want to share, you, you want to try to uh, you know, just give us information. You help with anything with any of the federal agencies. Please go to donalds.house.gov. Thank you, Brian. By the way, last question: <laughs> Can we possibly get daylight savings time permanently? The law was passed back during the uh, Scott administration, uh, sent to uh, I guess to Congress, and still waiting for approval of that. Jeez, I mean, I mean, I hope so. But <laughs> in all honesty, man, I'm. I'm just trying to see if we don't end up spending five trillion dollars this week. DC is insane, and that's the closest way to say it. Um, I guess we could, but there's so much in in that place that we got to reform or we got to fix. Yeah, you know, you you are so right. You have the right focus, and again, just genuinely appreciate uh, you representing us here, Byron. Again, Byron Donalds, our U.S. Congressman. Thank you so much for joining us. Awesome to be with you, Bob. Have a good one. Okay, you as well. Thank you. All right, well, that's a wrap on today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly had fun. Uh, on Monday, we'll visit with Dr. Zudi Jasser. He is the author of uh, The F- Battle for the Soul of Islam. He's the uh, American Islamic Forum for Democracy founder. We'll also visit with uh, Mark Schulman, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com, and 
Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief. I hope you make it a great day and weekend on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. Thanks so much for listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com.